Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. My name is Ben Myers. I'm your host for today's episode. I'm a housing market researcher, baseball coach, and I drive a van. So we're, we are experimenting with a slightly different format on the podcast today, more of a roundtable discussion with a couple of uh, GTA's smartest analysts and industry participants. But before we get started, I want you wanted to tell you about our tremendous sponsor. The Toronto Under Construction Podcast is sponsored by BCGI Barron Consulting Group, an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, and fund managers searching for talent. They are a trusted source of career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in North America. BCGI can be reached at www.bcgi.ca. All right, so three guests today. So instead of me doing the introductions, I'm going to get you guys to introduce yourself. So why don't you tell me about tell me who you are, obviously, what company you work for, and what you do at your firm. So why don't we start on my right, Steve? Take it away. Thanks for having me again, Ben. It's always good to no be problem. back no on the problem. podcast. Yeah. I say that like I'm a regular, but yeah. second time. <laughs> second time, uh, yeah. It was good to be back um, for a first time. So I'm, I'm Steve Kaiser, Executive Vice President with Colliers. I lead a team of people focused on urban land transactions in Toronto, uh, full advisory team, anything from planning to underwriting uh, condo sites, uh, a lot for private families, but we also do institutional work and government work uh, on behalf of uh, various uh, people within the city. And the ultimate goal is to help them maximize value, understand uh, the development possibilities with the real estate. So it's been 15 years for me and uh, still having fun. Perfect. Perfect. And if you want to know more about Steve, go back in the library of Toronto Under Construction and uh, and listen to the, the full episode uh, with Steve. So so Kevin, give us a little of your back your, your backstory here. Yeah, my name's Kevin Marthinson. Uh, I've been working at Cameron Stevens for the last 10 years now. Uh, the loyal listeners of the podcast will know what we do, um, <laughs> but we are uh, predominantly a debt lender licensed in Alberta, BC, and uh, Ontario, and we fund uh, real estate, commercial real estate uh, here. And we've also uh, started an equity capital side to our business. Nice, nice. And you're on the sales side of the business. I'm on the sales side of the business. I'm one of, I believe, eight, eight originators okay. uh, wow. across uh, the company. Across the country. Across the country. Nice. Seth, give, take it away. Yeah, firstly, I've only, only ever heard the audio of, of this thing. I didn't know Ben's wearing a Speedo and, a, and, a, and sunglasses, so I, I, that's, yeah, that's so quite I shocking to, to, to me. I like to keep it casual. My name's, uh, thanks for having me, uh, Ben. My name's Seth Hassan. I'm the VP um, uh, Development and uh, Real Estate for Elysium Investments. Elysium is a fairly new real estate uh, investment firm. I think we, we're on the periphery of being called a 
developer. I don't think a developer should be called a developer unless we built out under the banner and actually <laughs> handed the units over. Then you should get a certificate saying I'm a developer. So I'd say we are more of a real estate investor for now. We uh, source, identify, underwrite, uh, structure, uh, negotiate, uh, joint venture on land uh, um, deals. Um, we're agnostic as to the kind of land or the kind of asset, generally speaking. And uh, we try to add a value to development sites through either density or through structure or through uh, partnership. It's um, I've been doing this for about 20 years. So I've done uh, condominium development, purposeful rental development, and had a tenure at Parkbridge uh, Lifestyle Communities uh, doing land lease acquisitions across Canada. Nice, nice. So let's 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 get into land. Actually, that's a good first topic to uh, to start on. If my phone will open without my uh, face looking at it. So, <laughs> so the first first topic will be a little little self promotion. This uh, this past week, I released the GTA High Rise Land Insights Report, which is done by my firm Bullpen Consulting and Batory Management. So I took an a little snippet from the conclusion and it may be a little bit long to read here but I'm going to read it off and kind of get your guys thoughts on uh, on on what I came up with so so after a quarter century's worth of consecutive price growth in the new condominium market, developers are taking a serious assessment of where pricing is heading over the next five years and the state of the pre-construction investor landscape if we head into a period of longer-term resale price stagnation. Bullpen Consulting remains extremely busy running revenue assessments and projections for projects as rental and as condominium, as a pivot to rental may be required, and the unit mix, unit sizes, amenities, interior finishes between a new PBR and an investor-targeted condominium apartment had never been more divergent. The assessment above may be too bearish, as high-density land sales are still occurring, new condo sales are still happening, including projects selling out, population growth is at record levels, employment figures remain solid despite the rate hikes, rents continue to rise, and there really is no indication that new housing supply will meet underlying demand anytime in the future. The market remains uncertain in the short term. That is likely why we didn't see a single approved development site sell in Q2 2023. With that said, the development industry and the lenders that serve the industry will likely continue to be hypervigilant as it relates to new acquisitions of high density lands. So actually, let's start with Seth. As, as someone actively underwriting a number of different high density sites uh, currently, and you said that you may be one of the most <laughs> active recently in terms, of, in terms of acquisitions, what are your thoughts on the short and long term uh, prospects of the market for, uh, for high density development? Yeah, I think so. So starting with some context, I joined uh, Minkids Group, which is a family office real estate it's owned by Harley Mintz, and there was a partner, Jamie Torpy, and they brought me on board to do real estate uh, investments and sort of be the, not just be passive investments, actually be on the developer side of the table, identify sites. And I came on and I saw the market being a little bit soft and be thinking, okay, this is a good opportunity. It could be some arbitrage to be made in acquisitions. And what I found is the first three, four deals we submitted offers for, some of our market, somewhere on market, we got outbid. We had like 10 offers on one, 11 on the other, and it was shocking. It just, I'm like, I didn't see this coming. I just thought I could just waltz in and just, you know, uh, dine heartily. That, that wasn't the case. But as time has progressed, it's, uh, we began by acquiring a site at Western Finch, high-rise density site in another downtown Toronto, Isabella Sherburn, and all of a sudden, you see the market softening, but you don't see prices softening. The opportunity came that I looked at, we looked at with structure. So because prices are so sticky, landowners or have equity in the deal, 
they've seen the, the market traditionally go up and up and up with some blips. They don't. They want to hold on to the value at least. They don't want to give up the value. So what I found is we approach them as almost like a JV partner. It doesn't have to be like a zero sum game. Traditionally, it's always been a zero sum game. Either, either you know, the seller wins or the buyer wins. One of them. And it's an aggressive market. Everyone's competing, and in a down market, everyone's you know, they're, all the vultures come out. But if we approach them with uh, certain structures where maybe they get some cash on the back end, maybe it's a density bonus, maybe it's just pure profit participation, all of a sudden they get the price that they want and we get what we need for our returns. And, and that model has proved to be um, really uh, lucrative for us. We now have uh, two deals closed, 500 in DD closing potentially Q3, Q4, another seven to 10 in the underwriting pipeline. So it's you know, 256 million, five million square feet. Just numbers are just outlandish. Wow. Yeah, so there's a lot of opportunity. It's just developers have to give up some of their, their mindset. I think you know, you've got to participate in the deal with the seller. It doesn't have to be you have to win, you have to get the lowest price. I think what, what, what traditionally has been done wrong is like it's been a buyer's market for so long. Once the, the shoe is on the other foot, they they, they want to go in and, and you know pick it up for nothing or the cost of their debt. Yeah. And we operate it a little bit differently, but you can definitely see some softening in the perspective of landowners. Like they now realize that okay, the, the, their condo guys won't just pick it up at any price, and there's no bidding happening. Yeah. So just more of a, an incentive, or a, we can certainly see the, the softening happen in real time. Um, I think long term, I'm very bullish about the market, generally speaking. Immigration is at a record level, where supply doesn't uh, match up. All these condominiums got canceled, so you have an, the supply dropping potentially even more. Where I think the next paradigm shift is going to happen is rentals, purpose of rentals, um, you can see the rental pricing going up. I read your report. Uh, you, so Ben's report to me is now the new appraisal, and I just—he's uh, offered me twenty-five percent off for saying this, but it's, I, we don't even so appraisals are not worth the piece of paper that they're written on now. Like we don't even—if somebody sends me an appraisal and I've sent Ben some, we just discount it completely. Unless you parse the data out and you see the trend of it and you see, you know, every single aspect of the deal, I just—it's it, hard to, to price anything now. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we get get uh, Steve's uh, Steve's perspective? I, I haven't been getting as many emails from me on listings, so it's going to junk mail. So yeah. no, uh, so what, what, what are your thoughts? What are your what are your your clients and uh, and and the buyers out there in the market telling you about uh, about land? Yeah, like it's like Seth said, it's it comes down to structure now, like. The days of us putting a, a, a you know site onto the market and getting ten to fifteen bids and and leveraging it, and you know doing a short list of five or three and going into a second round, that's the, the numbers are much smaller now. And so, it's a it's a question of um, you know if you want all cash and you want to sell your property, you're going to take a discount. But to Seth's point, if you can structure a deal uh, whereby it's a delayed closing, there's a significant vendor take back mortgage. A lot of developers feel the way Seth do that the future is bright still, um, and we're talking three, two to three years out from now. But if you can structure a deal with a landowner, they participate in a way they will extract higher value. So it's a question of the vendor having the ability to participate. So one is you know they have a ton of equity tied up in the in the site. 
so they can offer a significant VTB or they can close the deal later. And so um, I'm just finding that a lot of the deals we're working on as of this year are, are starting to get structured that way where mm-hmm. they're not going to close this year. They're going to close in six, 12, 18 months. Wow. And so that's how you get deals done right now. Yeah. And otherwise to your, to your report, I'm not getting the discount for saying this. I don't know why, but, <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, you know, zone sites did not sell because those there was buyers, a single sale, right? In, right. Uh, in Q2, yeah. 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 So they want us to, and I've, I've been throwing offers against those sites and those vendors I'm speaking to all the time because they are at the end of their value creation period. And now it's like, okay, well now your, your land loan is, is due. What are you doing? So, um, you know, there are those conversations where people are starting, I find only in the last few weeks to say, Hey, Steve, remember we talked about that deal? Like, would they still buy? And so we are, and I think the, the issue with buyers right now is that they are very steadfast that in the next six months, the best deals are going to come out. So they to buy something now or three months ago, people were being very patient. And I feel like in the next six months, it's either prices are going to drop and you're just going to start to see those comps. And so other vendors are going to see the data points and realize that, okay, this is reality now. And then we kind of reset from there. But but right now, it's kind of everyone's just holding on and praying that it's been like, well, 2017, for example, um, when Kathleen Wynn got rid of the OLT. And so a whole bunch of things happened that year. But um, anyway, the next six months will be very telling. And we have to kind of hit that floor and that, you know, not one data point, but probably five to seven of, of downtown trades, yeah. zoned and unzoned, to actually everyone to kind of reset. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, my philosophy is it's um, everyone waits for to time the market. First of all, you can't time the market. You can be the, the best developer with the most analytics you want. You, there's no way to time it because by the time something happens, it's already happened. Right, so it, it, it's, um, I've just found that it, it's, you can't go, when the prices drop, I, I buy when it gets cheap and I buy when it gets cheaper. That's my, my philosophy. I'll buy at every stage. I'll just hedge uh, against the, uh, the outcome, but you know, if you structure a deal properly, you should be able to navigate through six months of, you know, downturn. <clears throat> but I just we anytime the drop happens, I think you just buy when, it, when it's cheap, buy when it's cheaper, buy when it's even cheaper. <laughs> yeah, and like yeah. we we have like interest rates, but there's so many other things that yep. purchasers are waiting for, right? Mm. Like, what is the conservative government going to announce in a couple weeks, yes. right? And yeah. what's happening with inclusionary zoning? Uh, what's happening with um, zoning around major transit station areas. They're going to have as of right zoning. And there's so many other things other than interest rates right now, mm-hmm. which obviously um, that's a big component of it. But a lot of the legislation, how the city is going to react to Bill 23 and Bill 97, are they going to ramp up the planning department to speed speed up planning applications? Um, it's just there's, there's so many unknowns. HST, uh, eliminating HST on purpose-built rentals. Is that going to happen? And then you have the condo guys saying, well, technically I'm building rentals, and so why don't I get that <laughs> HST, <laughs> HST reduction? Yeah, so, by, by so, so, yeah. so there's so many things that can unfold in the next six months, yeah. and I feel like people are waiting, but yeah. at the same time, you could miss the window, to your point, of trying yeah. to call the bottom. Yeah. Now, now may be the best time to buy. Yeah, when, when the trend is noticeable, it's too late. It's right. you got to be part of the, the causing the trend to happen. Right. 
Well, let's get Kevin involved here. So, you know, myself, I underwrite deals on behalf of a couple small lenders uh, in, in a new housing space. And that business actually picked up for me because, you know, some of these projects aren't launching and uh, and the landowners are looking to, you know, refinance or, you know, looking at, uh, you know, looking for a loan to, you know, increase their, their, their existing debt. Are you finding the same thing at, at Cameron, Cameron Stevens? Yeah, we are. Um, we've got a large portfolio of land loans right now on our books. Um, and, you know, with land loans, we structure them as 12, 24, 36 months, usually no longer than 36 months. We always want the ability to, uh, you know, sort of assess the loan after a period of time to make sure that the developer is moving the project forward or to see if any sort of significant planning milestones have been achieved. Um, so the nature of our business is that we've always got rollover uh, occurring every year. Um, um, and clients are coming back to us and they're saying, you know, we're, we're held up with the city. We don't have our approvals right now. So they're digging into their extension periods and we're seeing a tremendous amount of new land loan applications. It, it's, uh, it, it's unbelievable. Um, they're, they're coming in uh, probably, I think our group sees, you know, 20 deals a week. And this year, I think 50% of our new business is, is land loans. And, and they're great. You know, everyone says land is one of the riskiest asset classes to finance. But our group, uh, I feel as if we really understand GTA land, um, we're getting good returns, uh, lower LTVs. So from the investor side, you know, they're, uh, they're very willing to uh, extend credit to quality, uh, quality developers that we're seeing business from, um, guys that we haven't really worked with before. So... And how's the, uh, are you seeing uh, any distressed deals? You're having to take back any deals? Like how's the, uh, you know, at the, the, the any yeah. any of your, your, your deals that maybe you were a little uh, reluctant to take on coming back to bite you? Can you email me a list of them? Absolutely. He's looking for blood. I would say in, you know, in 2020 and 2021, I noticed that, uh, a lot of our competitors, we were losing business, business actually to some of our competitors because maybe we weren't aggressive enough. Um, and now, uh, you know, we're seeing some of the same sites that uh, we lost where the incumbent lender who uh, ended up winning the transaction now wants to be refinanced. So I think it's actually playing out really well for us. Um, you know, at the time, if you were to ask any one of the 1-8 originators who's trying to source new business, you know, we would be a little frustrated that we're losing the business. But um, in, in debt lending, uh, closing the transaction is one component of it. And then you've got to manage that file until the loan is repaid. And if you're in a workout scenario, uh, that's a time suck. Uh, so I don't think anyone wants to be in that situation. Um, I think every lender out there has, you know, a few deals on their watch list. I think that's just the nature of the business, you know, with a, with a rising rate, uh, environment, you're, looking at the deals that you did in the last 12 to 18 months and you're sort of assessing your clients and their liquidity and whether they're able to carry the loans, you know, are there enough uh, interest reserve uh, or is, sorry, is there sufficient interest reserve um, in the deal until maturity? Um, and, and then you want to look at the planning status. Can you, can you move them from a land loan into a pre-development loan or servicing loan, construction loan? Um, those are the conversations that we're having. So, we have uh, weekly meetings where we discuss uh, all the deals on our books and our pipeline, and we're uh, we're we're pretty organized in in forecasting 
deals that are coming up for repayment or deals that we think need uh, extra attention. There, there's only uh, deals that I can count on one hand. Okay. And do you give those deals to Steve to I sell for you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I can't I, say no to I actually go to, I actually, every once in a while, go to Insolvency Insider. Oh, I want to see, I I I I see if you know some deal. And there's not much on the real estate it, space it's coming It's usually up. some cannabis some growth operation. No, it's, it's, like, it's, 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 it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's everything, yeah, right? So I'm always looking for the real estate deals, and it's 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 never anything exciting, right? Yeah. So. It's true, <laughs> unless you want to own like an industrial building in Nova Scotia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool up and like, um, you, yeah. you had some good business from a, uh, uh, from a developer that lost a bunch of sites. So I remember yeah. that. We won't, yeah. we won't get into that. So uh, <laughs> in the past, now. yeah. So let, let's jump on to the next next topic here. So. Um, I pulled this article from from stories.com and says new Canadians account for over one third of new home buyers in Canada. So approximately 35% of new home buyers in Ontario were born outside of Canada and 4% were born outside of Ontario, according to Tarion's new home buyers report. Um, and so it says, while 35% were born outside of Canada, the majority have been living in Canada for over 17 years. So kind of interesting that uh, that um, newcomers, if you want to call someone living here for 17 years a, a newcomer, they, they love, um, you know, buying new homes. Uh, and uh, so some, some other key points I wanted to read up. Ontario, uh, Ontarians buying new homes, 35% are first-time buyers, 65% are repeat buyers, uh, 74% of first-time buyers uh, were the newcomers to Canada. Uh, so another thing that came out, a builder's reputation and the, and the property's warranty protection uh, were two of the top factors uh, buyers considered when uh, doing their new home search. Energy efficiency was a key issue, as noted by 96% of respondents, which is, which is kind of interesting. 73% of respondents wanted space to work from their uh, uh, to work from home. Uh, fully detached homes were the most popular property type, as we as we know that hasn't changed. 66% of new home buyers preferred that, followed by semi-detached at thir- uh, and townhomes at 38%, condos 32%. So, so, uh, so, um, uh, Seth, let me start with you. It said a builder's reputation was cited by 92% of the respondents to the survey as a new developer. You know, what, what do you think you'll have to do to, to gain the trust of potential buyers in uh, in your future projects? Yeah, well, firstly, I'd reject the tag of new developer because I just, you know, I, I've developed many projects for, you know, my, you know, I was running a company, then part of different companies have developed under this, the, uh, the umbrella now. Yeah. Let's see, we ha- haven't developed. So until yeah. we do, I, I'd reject that, that title. <laughs> yeah. But I say, you know, it is very, so when you're saying homes, we're saying just low rise homes or uh, new homes in general. So, homes. so, yeah, so it would have, it would have, gone for you know ground oriented housing high rise low rise everything yeah. so i mean if you're a developer you're developing high rise you're basically selling to investors i mean that's does a six to eight year lag from when you buy your <laughs> land to when you construct it for a high rise i mean the biggest issue that the confidence that the condo uh, purchases are having you, you might have seen this it's will we eventually get our unit because if if hard costs go up the way that these, um, or any any costs go up, interest costs go up, the way that the agreements are written, it's uh, favoring the developer because you have you know, a certain timeline within which to cancel the unit and then resell uh, at a higher price. And some developers just don't have any other option. If, if your cost base, you project your cost base six years prior to, to occupancy, you're going to fall short somewhere. And I think the biggest issue is 
that these buyers have to have confidence that the unit will be handed to them at the price that they paid. Yeah, right. yeah it's interesting that, uh, that that was one of the things, one of the potential policy changes was uh, um, that Doug Ford and his government was talking about was uh, fining developers that go back and ask for, for more money. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you just end up going to kill the project or you're going to, you know, just cause less supply to happen if that's just an additional tax on good developers, essentially, right? So that just, you know, for like every every developer has canceled a project. Mankeys has canceled a project. It's, Tridell has canceled a project. Yeah. Great Gulf has canceled a project. Every good developer has is, is canceled projects. Even, you know, you know, Liberty Development's canceled a big one in the in the 905, right? Yeah. So so everyone has run into those types of uh Well, you're a speculator, shortfalls. right? If you're investing alongside the developer, you are speculating, speculating too, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's a risky investment. You know, you should be an accredited investor. If you're buying it for your home, it's risky. Like buy an existing or buy a resale if you want certainty. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, in a frothy market, the market's going like gangbusters. Like anyone with cap, what's the barrier to entry for a developer? It's capital and the pulse, basically. Right? If you have some money, you just <laughs> you throw it out there, you're a developer now. And all of a sudden, you've got a sales center, you've got this embellished outlook. But I mean, the guys who look at it from a longer term perspective, I mean, there are many reputable um, developers you can buy from, they're in it for the long term. And they, even for a project losing money, they'll throw cash behind it just to keep that reputation intact yep. and uh, those uh, they have a huge following so it might be like a madame or another developer so it's I would say in a good market there's lots of new entrants and it's difficult for a home buyer to have confidence, so how do you select? And that's why um, developers like Mattamy or any other long-term developer, uh, Ballantry is an example, they tend to have this mass following and the units sell really quickly. But it's it's hard. It's how do you protect uh, against a rising cost base for the developer? It's uh, unless you subsidize that, that yeah. increase. Yeah. That's why I actually like the investor model. I know people you you always see them complain online. These you know you know, the academics and stuff like that, or some, you know, left-leaning political, super left-leaning political candidates, too many investors in the market, they're driving it up. And I'm like, investors, perfect. They're coming in, they're betting that 15 to 20% on a, on the value of a new condo unit in three, four, five years down the line. They're taking the risk that the project could get canceled and they have tied up their money for, for two, three years. I'm like, it's it's perfect, right? They, they do that and then you can go in and buy that completed unit when it's completed and you can walk through through it and you can see the finishes and uh, you can put your 5% down and, and own that unit. It's a, it's a great system. We just have to think of it as just crowdfunding real estate as opposed to all these investors. They're crowding out the end users. I'm like, there's twenty, there's fifteen to 20,000 unsold condominiums at any one time in the GTA, right? Like, it's not really that hard to buy a new condominium if you want to, right? I don't think people are getting crowded out because of investors. Well, I mean, so. take out the pre, pre-con investor from the market and you your rental supply is going to be 50% yeah. diminished. Yeah. You need For sure. That. I mean, it's, it's, it's our new rental supply, yeah, right? It is. So, yeah. Anyways, what, what did I what did I have next on here? Um, I, I, th- I think I had another question for, for, for Steve. Um, it, it did mention that 73% of new home buyers were looking for space to work from home. So that appears to be, you know, a trend that is that is here to stay. What impact do you think that's having on developers buying high density land now? Are they are they, uh, you know, thinking, hey, maybe I should do smaller towers. Maybe I should be in the, uh, you know, be more active in the 905. You know, is it impacting hotel sales or office building sales? I'm sure it's <laughs> impacting uh, sales of, of, of office buildings, but maybe just 
you know, all um, that stuff that I said. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tie it all together. <laughs> tie it all together. So I saw a couple of deals. Like, I would say that that research is probably pretty temporary, as you see lots of articles in many trade publications saying that, you know, we may settle back at a four-day work week. Um, but I've seen, all throughout the last few years, I've seen groups like IWG, um, you know, and some of those uh, uh, work-sharing groups, um, t- totally said that wrong, but you know they're they're getting space in condo buildings, yeah. so they realize that a certain um, component of the population is going to always be able to work from home, and they want separation from their home. Yeah, like like, like what you're myself. doing, exactly. Right. So you, you take the elevator down to the podium of the building, and you have shared workspace. So I started to see that even before the pandemic. Um, I imagine that will grow, but. As you know, in order to drive the highest revenues, condos need to get smaller and smaller. So will they, you look at the value of office space and it's a lot lower than, than residential space. So I'm not necessarily sure that I'm seeing yet, maybe Seth can, can comment on this, that developers are accommodating it within the residential unit. I think they realize that that will happen as a result. Um, you know, And so I think uh, rental builders will probably start to look at more amenities within the building to accommodate those workers. And I think the the podium of the building will change, not necessarily the units. Yeah, I, I've asked a few developers if they're planning on doing the the den has is on the, you know, the window because you're working from home. So you want to be able to open up and have the sun come in uh, and then the bedroom be an interior bedroom because it's nighttime. You're sleeping, you know, you don't need to throw open the curtains and have your folders in the morning. Just, hey, have it dark. It's easier to sleep, right? But building code doesn't allow that. The primary bedroom has to be, have some access to, to glazing and a certain yeah. percentage of it and the second yeah. bedroom has to have more. It's too oh, rigid. Yeah. It's too rigid. It's way too oh, yeah. rigid. Yeah. So... Anyways, yeah. that's just a, a, a comment off the cuff. I, I, I read that, that, you know, one of the reasons we were seeing so much more action on two-bedroom units in the rental market is right. people, they didn't want, if I'm going to be working for eight hours at home, I don't want it to be in a dark den. Yeah. I wanted to have some window access, and I don't want to set up a desk in my bedroom or in my in my living room, right. which is already super small. Well, so I think I think if you live downtown, you have, you have a condo downtown, it's likely that you're going into the office. I think the future is... If you if there's a condo in the 905 or wherever, you know where you don't need to be down in the action. I feel like those builders will do that more because yeah. I find that if you're looking for affordability, you're going to go outside of the city because you don't need to be downtown because you don't need to be in the office. Yeah. So I could see that being a 905 trend yeah. as opposed to a 416 trend. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So. Pull, I pulled another article from stories.com. Uh, good work to the, to the folks over there covering <laughs> yeah. lots of things yeah. in the industry. So uh, I wanted to mention this because I did do some consulting on this one, and I, and I like the guys over at, at, at TAS. So, um, and, and if you want to listen to the, the, uh, the, the Toronto Under Construction episode with TAS, uh, please go back in the library. It says, Toronto's first net zero mid-rise residential building approved for Leslieville. Um, the uh, construction is expected to uh, begin on 880 Eastern Avenue in the winter of 2024, which will be Toronto's first net zero mid-rise residential building designed for both people and the planet to have as little of an environmental impact as possible. 
The building will have geothermal heating and cooling, low carbon concrete and stormwater recycling, several green roofs, a community garden, and uh, walkways overlooking a courtyard are also incorporated into the plan. So, so Kevin, in that, in that, in the previous article that I read, it said. Um, you know, it mentioned the importance of energy efficiency to new home buyers. Um, so, but when you're underwriting a deal, do you get worried when you see too many of your too many of these environmental bells and whistles added to, uh, when you're underwriting the deal, and you see you like, can these costs be recouped? Is that is that something you uh, um, you guys discuss when you uh, maybe working with a client that maybe is uh, a little too a little too going maybe a little too far than you'd like to see? Well, we're not. It's not my number one worry related to the environmental bells and whistles. Like, <laughs> to be honest, what I'm looking for, like there's a few things that I look for immediately when a deal comes in. I look at their hard costs. If you're building a mid-rise, uh, you know, you, what, you, you tell me, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I said 450 to 550. 450 to 550. Yeah. yeah. So are you within those parameters? And if you're less than that, you know, how do I politely tell the, the you know, Mr. Developer that I think he's wrong or, and, and, or do I even want to get into that argument? Um, so that's number one. Number two, I want to see what your land input is. Uh, are you underwriting it at cost? Are you underwriting it? Uh, with, are you trying you know, to get a land bump of 20, 20 million? Well, well exactly. <laughs> well, what's happening is that uh, because of the interest rate hikes and uh, you know the higher financing costs associated with these projects is that the first thing that I'm doing is removing the land lift that developers have in their budgets. And then, uh, you know, that the consequence to that is then you have to look at their equity composition and, you know, what were they performing? So these projects are incredible. Mid-rise projects are incredibly difficult to, oh, yeah. to yeah. build. Yeah. And, and you know that for the first time. You know, the, remember there was a boom of mid-rise sites like Carlisle and Naran was doing it. Yeah. Everyone's excited about the, um, the new sort of mid-rise guidelines and there was, you know, gap in the urban infrastructure. And then when you started doing it, there was some really architecturally cool buildings uh, being offered, and then when you start building them, you realize, uh oh, the 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 economies of scale are not the, anything goes wrong. You, you cannot amortize it, or you only have a few hundred thousand, if if any, in some cases less than hundred thousand square feet to amortize that. The cost increase or delay, and it's just the economics are so tight. It's remarkable anybody got any building done. Yeah, it, it became. Before you would you would almost always see a mid-rise building be significantly less than a than a high-rise building, yeah. right? And then it became we started to see that becoming a premium, you know, the the, the Gerlach model, right? Yes. Yeah. Where he would say, okay, I need to charge more. I, I mean, I'll up my interior finishing slightly, but I mean, the cost of that additional uh, is small, and he's charging uh, that much or more than a high-rise tower that's right beside transit. So it, it's it's amazing that that. You know, guys like him and others have said, okay, these almost have to be luxury buildings, right? They have to they be end user buildings. Yeah, yeah, you got to be in yeah. a good neighborhood yeah. and you got to get the end users, but then you're kind of struggling on Absorption is slow. It takes forever. Like all the mid rise, got, we got premiums of every mid rise. Yeah. We got $100, $150. Your absorption is slow. It's, sometimes it's harder to get approvals because now you're in a sort of urban environment. You got yeah. NIMBYs coming up. Yeah. I had one uh, project, I'm not going to name the counselor, I can uh, write it down. <laughs> so we spent, it's a small site, it was a small uh, footprint. Uh, we went in with nine stories, we negotiated with the city and the counselor's office for a year, a year and a half, and they agreed to seven. So staff, we got a staff recommendation for approval for seven story building. And we go to the council uh, and uh, the council meeting, and it's there from the staff recommending approval. And I'm sitting there waiting for our agenda item to come, and the counselor, who will go unnamed, he sidled beside me, 
on a back of a napkin or like a crumpled piece of paper. He had a sketch of the building we were proposing, and he had a cross going through the top two levels. And he said, give me this or I'm not, I'm going to say no. And I said, what's, sorry, that's, you know, he spent a year and a half with you and your staff. What, what's the basis for it? He's like, because I said so. Or, so, you know, you see, you know, he's probably being pressured by someone in the community, but that, him saying no, added a year and a half time to the thing is we have to go to the uh, uh, Ontario Municipal Board. The board member that heard the case had a heart attack. He had another surgery, so we have to wait for him because he's the only one who can opine on the hearing. And then the city spent six hundred to $800,000 on opposing its own planner at the, at the board. So it's just ridiculous. And you know, high rise can amortize that because you have units and you can raise pricing, just mid rise cannot. Yeah. yeah Is that how uh, deals are hashed out now in the city? Just, uh, just back on the napkin, yeah. sort of comments from the counselor yeah. and they yeah. push it over His the table. big unhappy face. Yeah. So, see this building? Yeah. Oh, yeah. unhappy face emoji. Yeah. Five stories less. <laughs> Smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the mid-rise, I think the mid-rise dream is, is dead along yeah. the avenues. Yeah. And when you look at, we look at performers all the time with landowners and you look at Queen Street, right? As soon as you run a residual land value performer on a six-story condo, the building is worth just as much or more based on keeping it as what That's it what is. Deal, right? So yeah. no one's incentivized to like get a lift on their property to sell. So you can't even assemble these properties to build. Yeah. So I think you got to be, I don't know what Seth would say, but probably nine to 12 stories, maybe, to start, yeah. to start making sense where you're you getting You've got to be north of like 150,000 square feet. It's, right. yeah, yeah, it's got to be minimum that. Yeah. yeah. And it, plus the, the, the mid-rise guidelines, it's just, they're guidelines, but now they're sacrosanct, right? You're, you're applying them to every, it's no longer a guideline. It's I thought the angular plane was evaporating. Is it uh, not? It's, it, yeah, I hope it's it evaporating. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's the worst thing that happened in mid-rise real estate. That yeah. guideline is, is every building looks like a birthday cake or like a little TP. It's just, it's architecture's out the window. And it's just so inefficient because you're, you're not building straight up. Like every volume changes every floor. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, our planners went to Europe, probably went to Paris yeah. and Barcelona and said, look, they can build six, seven stories and make it work. But that happened hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And not with real estate values where they are. So it just we're, doesn't work. Yeah, out. we're on Kingston Road. And there's a few of these like wedding cake buildings a little bit farther down. And some of them just, I you take a picture of it. And I said, like, if someone came to Toronto and looked at this building from another, I'm like, what are you possibly thinking with this, these buildings? Like you wonder how they, they, they possibly made any money. Right. So it kind of, kind of blows my mind but I, th I think it, if, if we could do 12 stories and Seth said you know 150,000 square feet you can get that if you get enough properties but it just provides way more vibrancy you know in the beach where I live you know restaurants turn over all the time so there's just not enough density to support the businesses and businesses constantly go out of um, out of business and and cannot really survive so you know a few more floors could solve that it's not I don't think it's too crazy to yeah. imagine I actually I had a post on my LinkedIn I don't know if you saw it I had the quotation from Oppenheimer when he says now I have become death destroyer worlds and I was like who said this Oppenheimer or the guy who invented the mid-rise guideline <laughs> and I just I got a bunch of uh, yeses from planners in the city all, you know, all supporting my comment so yeah it's just the worst thing that's happened it, just, it seems crazy because you know oh we want need to protect the backyards of, uh, of, of single family homeowners but mm -hmm. you can still like just look over and see right in their backyard so it doesn't make you, you any sound sense experienced in this yeah. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> yeah that's why I come up to the rooftop yeah, here yeah. I have my binoculars 
years and I, uh, I just hold a bird book and just be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm just looking at birds. Uh, no. <laughs> Anyways, the, yeah, the mid-rise guidelines are, are, are ridiculous and, uh, and, and all the, the counselors that, uh, that, uh, that fight them and, and I think every developer makes, uh, makes uh, hundreds of millions of dollars you know, on every single deal, right? We're finding uh, for some of the mid-rise projects that we have in our office, the it's interesting to look at the absorption and the units that are selling. And, and this is what some of the conversations that we're having. Um, because if you're going to start financing the construction of a condo project and when you dig into the sales, you see all the, you know, we're in a seven-story building right now. So all the seven-story, uh, maybe actually, you know what, the seven, the seventh floor units probably won't have launched yet. So they're selling the sixth, the fifth. (laughs) And then when you get down to the, you know, the second floor, the third floor, like those are, those are arguably less desirable because you don't get the views. You know, we look out to the left and you see Lake Ontario um, and we can see this beautiful skyline of Toronto. So we are looking at that as well. Um, And and we'd like to see a nice uh, mix of units being sold across, across the building in our underwriting. Or you go in my unit uh, in this building and you look directly into the person across the street that's on the computer uh, all day long and sleeps with the the window up uh, right against the window which is always pretty weird yeah it's Uh, weird because they're like 20 feet away from you and yet you still have binoculars (laughs) 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 but you know speaking speaking of that what what i thought was really interesting is i is i had i was doing a, a a study for a project that was across the street from 1717 avenue road so it was one of the first buildings that went in on avenue road uh, it was by Tribute Communities. And I looked at what the units sold for. So the units at the top floor, and this is like 15 years ago, sold for $900 a square foot. So just, you know, more than Yorkville. Next was like, the next floor down was like 750 Then it was like 650 and then 600 And then the, 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 the floor that was above what was going to be a pet store and a muffin store, <laughs> muffins or whatever. The they muffin. were like the muffin store. Yeah, they, were like, they couldn't sell them. They sold for like 450 bucks a foot and they sold to a, a, a Korean syndicate because they couldn't, couldn't sell them because they thought this is a luxury building. This is the first building in, in Avenue Road. We're going to have no problem. But there's no views, right? And it's loud and there's no balconies because you're right above the muffins. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, so it was really, <laughs> it's really interesting that, you know, you, you're, you're, you're looking at a blended price per square foot, yeah, yeah. but you get a few units that don't sell for what you thought, yeah. then it screws the entire you performance. Know I used to, we used to have a survey when you came in, the, the, the buyer used to come into the sales center, we had the film survey, one of the questions was, do you have a fear of heights? And we were like, <laughs> oh, here's a second floor unit. Um, yeah, it's just, those are terrible. Those are always like the inventory. That's why it's, yeah, you, you guys are right. Those tend to be inventory units and remain on the, then you end up getting inventory fin- financing. It's just digital move. Nobody yeah. wants to live above, you know, um, Main Street retail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, or at 45. Interesting. I wanted to read this article. I actually thought this, I, I missed it, but uh, my analyst sent it to me and I thought it was, uh, was, it was a pretty interesting happening and I want to get your thoughts on it. So, the uh, the inf- uh, infamous ICE Condos enters into exclusive partnership with Airbnb. 
Um, so Ice Condos has confirmed that Airbnb will be the exclusive short-term rental platform for the pair of condos located at 12 and 14 uh, York Street in the downtown core. A 15% booking surcharge will be added to guest fees that will go towards supporting building operations and providing 24-hour security check-in. Ice Condos has had a very negative reputation over the years, rumored to be predominantly investor-owned rental scams and criminal activity have been fairly common issues. The partnership with Airbnb will hopefully improve these conditions by ensuring hosts are licensed and compliant and that they have a partnership with the City of Toronto. Additionally, compliance officers throughout the City of Toronto have been hired to regulate the 180-day maximum stay in short-term rentals. So, Steve, any thoughts on this uh, partnership? What do you think of the, 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 the you know, kind of a multi-part uh, question? What do you think about the impact of Airbnb has had on development of hotels in the city? I'm sure, I'm sure you don't see too many uh, um, de- uh, developers uh, buying lands for hotels these days. No, I mean, well, maybe now as land comes down. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ice Condos is um, obviously notorious. I think the chair girl was... was <laughs> the chair girl. <laughs> Yeah, she put that uh, condo on the map. Yeah, that, that's what really. So maybe she'll be a sponsor. She'll be a spokesperson. You should have her as a guest. Yeah. yeah, God forbid you bought. We'll a- have to lock the doors up here. Though. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, God forbid yeah. you bought a condo in there as an end user, um, and all of a sudden, you know, the building bylaws change. I don't know if it was bylawed from the beginning for short term, but um, you know, I think it definitely hammers the value of the building. Um, I don't know what the economics are in Airbnb anymore, whether it's a cash flow positive situation, depending on how, how much condos cost. But, you know, we we don't see any influence on short term rentals on, on the land up front because usually we're dealing with the developer and Airbnb is not a developer yet. Yeah. So they're not bringing their economics to the table. But I, just from an individual and from a citizen perspective, like. I think it's kind of good if you you designate certain buildings for it, and everyone knows going into the investment that that's what it's for. Otherwise, yeah. if you're going to live there, it's it's I've heard it's a it's a nightmare yeah. to to be in these buildings. But you know, I, I don't know if the Airbnb margin is what it used to be back in the day when people were yeah. like not telling uh, the CRA what they were getting, and it was just like kind of like you know, hey, you wouldn't believe this. Yeah. And yeah. So there was a few pre, you know, maybe two three years ago, there was a lot of pre construction you know, brokers promoting, hey, like we'll manage your Airbnb for you, you're gonna make all this money, and then the number of Airbnb properties just started to skyrocket, right? And mm-hmm. I'm sure that ate into to everyone's uh, margins. And now obviously the city has has put in these rules about, uh, you know, really not supposed to do it on anything other than your primary residence, right? So you're only, you know, if you go away for the weekend, you can Airbnb it, or you can do your, you know, laneway suite or, or what have you, but I'm sure, 70% of the properties that are on Airbnb are not someone's primary it's, it's residence. It's building specific now, right? Is that how it works? I don't know. I didn't think it was, I, I thought it was supposed to be uh, essentially banned, right? right? So that's why I'm, I was surprised to read this this article. But uh, I think in the condo bylaws, like you can decide and you vote. You vote, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and you, vote. they always, almost always vote to not have Airbnb. Yes, it's, it's interesting. I thought it was banned as well. I thought yeah, was, yeah uh, that's what I thought. So, so the owners so. voted yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I assume so because yeah. it's mostly investors, I guess, right? So, yeah. uh, but I don't know if you're if you want to rent to a full time tenant, then yeah, they may not want someone partying from Europe in the next next unit, right? And uh, uh, you know, 
tossing things off balconies and <laughs> beer cans and what have you. So anyways, I just thought that was an interesting story and I hadn't, uh, I hadn't seen that really discussed. Well, I don't know. I, I know I've seen that prices for hotels in Toronto have skyrocketed in the last 24 months yeah. post COVID. And obviously Airbnbs are a lot cheaper, but like you don't get the amenities usually that you do in a hotel. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, uh, and guests that I have in the city, um, you know, certain people that, uh, visiting short term, they do look at Airbnb because hotels are, I feel are like eight, $900 a night yeah, yeah, for the top just, hotels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I found there's so much inflation in, in hotels yeah. recently of the places that I've traveled. I've just been shocked at, I, I went to Boston it was like 600 bucks a night. I'm like, oh, this hotel's going to be sweet. And I went, I'm like, huh, it's like a, it's like a st- one step above a super eight. I'm like, yeah, I was like, it was like, do you got a, you know, continental breakfast or something, <laughs> but no, it did not. So anyways, okay. So let's, let's get on another, another topic. And, and, you know, obviously I'm in the, in the, you know, primary in the residential space, but I, uh, I keep an eye on what's happening in, in, in other types of re- uh, real estate. So it's uh, a re- article was posted on, uh, on, uh, Renex. It says Canada lags behind us Europe when it comes to student housing. Um, it says, when it comes to purpose-built student accommodations, PBSA, Canada is very behind compared to the USA and many European nations, despite an already large and increasing international student population. A recent Bonnard report titled, Why Canada's PBSA Sector is a Great Opportunity for Investors has attracted investor uh, attention. Oh, wow. The article discusses concerns how an overall housing shortage in combination with a lack of PBSA options is creating an issue for students and is taking away from Canada's popularity, which will cause harm to universities. Many, let me see, um, PBSAs provide accommodations for just 12% of students. This is much lower than over than the over 30 percentage uh, in the USA and the UK and 17% in Europe. While universities are looking for a solution to this issue, they are experiencing significant challenges when it comes to funding the development of PBSAs as public sector universities and colleges receive provincial funding, which prevents them from borrowing from third parties, which I did not know. As a result of this, universities have started looking into public-private partnerships as potentially mutually beneficial solutions. Though the issue of universities seeking lower cost for housing versus developers interested in acceptable investment return for that barrier. So, uh, Seth, have you ever looked into student housing during your career? You know, if so, you know, what are kind of the, the barriers to, to entry? So, like you had, like I always track and, and follow to any asset class that's hot. So, industrial became really hot, self storage. I think students, so right now, uh, we are actively, uh, we have a deal um, with Trios that are investing in a, in a site that we have in Brampton. They're a, a career advancement or a college of some kind, and they provide uh, guidance to students and um, skill advice, et cetera. It's got a large, large platform. Um, when I dove into student, uh, personal student rentals, it's such a massive opportunity. Like when you look at the data, yeah. uh, we are m- miles behind the UK uh, and the US. Like the, it's 
I think the stats are only 3% of Canadian students live outside campus because simply isn't enough supply, enough um, inventory for them to go to. I think that same stat in the U.S. is 12% to 15%. And then you have these firms like Alignvest as an example. What they're doing is they're consolidating a very fragmented student housing sector. It's all sort of uh, mom and pop, boutique, one here, one there. There's no real programmatic element to it. Uh, and the cap rates are quite high compared to the U.S. Just it hasn't been refined, uh, and we're actually looking to program a high-rise tower uh, on the Brampton site as potentially student housing. Okay. Because when you when I looked at the data, I'm like, okay, for uh, I typically now for new builds, and there's hardly any, for t- uh, one bedroom, which will have two beds in it, it's yeah. 200 square feet. You could hypothetically accommodate four of those within a thousand square foot unit. Uh, and the revenue you're getting is higher than a purposeful rental limit. It's 5,500, right? Yeah. And your cost base is lower, and your uh, retention is fairly high in these new developments. It just pencils out. So it's it's been a really interesting deep dive that I've done. And every single stat is showing me that this is the next hot uh, asset class. It's going to be, you know, how industrial and self-storage is extremely hot, still is. This, to me, is the next sort of wave. Uh, and I'm tracking it uh, with a lot of interest. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I had no idea that you were actually looking at it. Yeah. I just, I, oh, just you know, okay. yeah, I just, yeah. I saw that article. Like, and I thought, you, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was kind of interesting because yeah, yeah. there's been so much talk about, you know, that the how much the population grew in that first story that I that 60 percent are mm. non-permanent residents, and a huge chunk of that is students coming uh, internationally. And and I think to myself, I look at these rental rates. It was like uh, I'm doing some work for Kijiji, and the average condo for rent is like twenty six hundred dollars in the city of Toronto, and that's the amalgamated city of Toronto. I think, man, just think $2,600 a month, right, is the average for, for and, and, you know, it's like 700 square feet, right? So you got to think, you, you, you're, when you're looking at 500 square feet, it's $2,000 a month. Like, my God, that's, that's a lot of money for someone that does not have a job or has a part-time job or, and also trying to pay these inflated rates for universities these days. Yeah, I just, I, I'm blown away how much it costs to go to university these, these days and how much Those, debt that students are taking did you on. Did the article about that student, I think, was going to Sheridan College, one of these colleges, he was living under a bridge in the fountain. Did you know that's, that's true? Yeah, I think it, it's, it's I find it really sad, and he just they couldn't he couldn't afford it, so he was just living under a bridge for a few days just so he can get his cash back up. And they found him, and, and that's not an anomaly; that's happening quite a lot, yeah. right? And what I also found is when it, it's really interesting is when I looked at the performance of you know institutions or uh, developers doing these rentals, it's so ancient, archaic. It's like on a per door basis yeah. or per unit basis, it's not refined anywhere close to what condo guys do. It we we I, we. Every square inch that a condo developer does is evaluated. It's a certain size, a size compression. It hasn't been done as yet in a student housing platform. So if someone, we're actually looking very intensively at programming uh, our tower with student rentals and seeing how it pencils out. It's never been done properly or like fully with data or analytics. It's just industry standards that they apply. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because yeah. I was, you know, did some work in Kitchener-Waterloo and then they changed the zoning around the, yeah. around the university and then all of a sudden just a whole bunch of towers all popped up and then that just all stopped. Mm. Then there just wasn't much after that. So it was kind of kind of crazy. With, and, and yeah, they have these four bedroom units, mm-hmm. right, that are... You know, 
1,100 square feet and it's got four bedrooms in it and each each bedroom is like 800 to 1,200 bucks a month, right? And I'm more like, than that. Like, yeah, that's oh, right. yeah, way more. Like, yeah. Numbers look good. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty good. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, I need you know? the annual turnover, right? Yeah. That's, or like semester turnover. Yeah, that's, tough, I guess, the issue, rent. right? Like, are they leasing it? Are they able to, to recoup some revenue during the summer? Mm-hmm. Are they people staying all year long? Like, how are they, how are they you know, um, managing the turnover? Uh, you know, do they, you know, because students obviously beat the shit out of units, right? So how much are they, how much is the, the, the cost to, uh, to clean these, uh, clean these A lot of these up? institutions are sitting on so much land, you know, within their campuses. And I think there was a funding change. I'll have to check this, but ever since the Laurentian scandal of how the government funds universities, that model is changing. And so universities and colleges are going to have to start finding out ways to fund themselves. Huh. And so a lot of them are activating developments within their campuses. And yeah. you see probably a lot more JVs coming up because they have to do more self-funding. And I think traditionally they just, you know, certain universities downtown, you know, everyone's always said it's it's really hard to get a deal done with them. Well, that's yeah. because traditionally it's been run by academics. But yeah. I think you'll start to see the, them hire real estate people and get a little bit more sophisticated because near U of T, for example, there's people all over me for any type of site that they can buy there. Huh. And there's just not a, not a lot. You look around campus and there's not a lot of high rise sites. Yeah. So it's got to happen within the campuses. And I'm starting to see people get hired at universities that are real estate people. So yeah. that may provide some relief. Yeah. yeah. It'd be interesting to, interesting to see. I mean, you, they have that property. They could do some type of mixed use where you got, you know, classes in the bottom two floors and you got some student housing. And then maybe on top of that, you've got housing dedicated for staff only. Right. And so they have staff housing and then maybe some, some penthouses you, uh, you know, you, you know, sell those at a, at a premium, right? It's completely different makeup, unit makeup, right? Than a market building. So you got to choose and that's got to be your model. Yeah. So anyways, this is just thinking outside the box here. And, and, uh, and I knew that, uh, what did I have on here? I, I wanted to read something from the Cameron Stevens website. It says, CSMC funded a $56.95 million first mortgage term loan secured against two existing student rental buildings in the city of Waterloo. For this uh, deal, uh, we were able to offer the borrower a low debt service coverage ratio covenant, and we were able to consolidate their debt into one loan facility. By providing a blanket first mortgage against two separate assets, CSMC provided one commitment letter for both assets at a very competitive fixed rate. Um, on a five-year term basis, thereby reducing both carrying costs and the overall costs associated with borrowing. So we've obviously obviously done some loans. Obviously, this is a you know not a, a construction loan. Um, are you seeing any of these student deals coming across your desk? Like you know, do you have a do you uh, is there any discussion of this type of, of housing in, in in your shop? Uh, well, I remember I remember this deal. Uh, I actually did this one uh, back in 2018. Um, you know, we're not seeing a lot of student rental and the reason why, well, actually, let me rephrase. We see it, but it's very competitive because there are very few developers who are doing it well. And the, uh, you know, the banks are all over those, those clients and, and, and it's, and they're being very aggressive and they have got a bucket of capital to fund this type of asset. And then there are other developers who don't do it well, who frankly, no one wants to finance. <laughs> so, y- you know, there's, there's no real middle. Um, 
it, so it's a very uh, desirable asset class uh, as an office. I wish we we did more of it, um, but this uh, but but we are doing a lot of bridge and uh, you know two year three year bridge loans right now for these income producing assets right now that are in transition or everyone's banking on the rates falling in the next year. So just a short term bridge loan to get them uh, through a period of uh, you know high financing costs, uh, and then we'll move them into a you know five year or three year fixed okay or they'll go for cmhc financing interesting so I'll, I'll i'll this is a good one for uh for seth because i know that you're actually involved in this transaction so so i pulled this uh this press release so Manami homes partners with parkbridge to bring first mixed home ownership community to ontario so it says potential home buyers in Innisville, Ontario, will soon have a variety of ownership choices to meet their needs, thanks to an innovative partnership between Madame Homes, North America's largest privately owned home builder, and Park Ridge Lifestyle Communities, Canada's leading developer of residential land lease communities. The partnership will bring the first mixed ownership community to Ontario, featuring featuring both traditional freehold homes and land leased homes. The future community of Lake Haven in Innisfil, Ontario, is expected to total approximately 2,000 homes and be built out in four stages over 10 years. Approximately two-thirds of the homes will be single-family in, in the traditional ownership model, and one-third will be bungalow townhomes in the land-lease ownership model. So, so obviously, you were deeply involved in this transaction. Can you tell us a little bit about more about it? And do you think this is, you know, land-lease developments will be something we'll see more of in the future? Yeah, I mean, first, I'd love to think uh, that deeply involved. Uh, I think it, it was, it was, I was peripherally involved. I think what, uh, <laughs> no, what happened is, so two years ago, uh, I, I got a call from a headhunter at Parkbridge, and I, I was like, what's Parkbridge? It's, uh, it's a land lease, uh, owner operated, you know, they acquire sites that tr- traditionally been trailer park sites that they've assembled, they sort of upzoned a little bit. When I say upzone, it's, you know, an average uh, house is large, it's on a 50 foot lot, 60 foot lot. And it, it, not a lot of people know about the company or land lease. I just certainly didn't. I knew about crown lease and I was like, okay, is that similar to the land lease? What's going on? And uh, the headhunter or their, um, uh, the, the, the guy in human resources who was lovely, he essentially said, well, the issue that we're having is we haven't acquired in a few years. And we're, we have a lot of uh, cash, a lot of firepower. We have some, some really um, intelligent new leadership. And we need somebody to come and do acquisitions for us. And I, I was intrigued enough, had some conversations. I, I took the job. And I'm just thinking, you know, these guys are so um, capital rich. They've got you know, a lot of dry powder. They want to invest it. It's, yeah, done deal. It's easy. So I, I look at the performa and it just didn't work because the performa was set up at this uh, almost like a trailer park thing. It wasn't set up as a condor developer or um, something like a Madame or a, like a freehold developer would set it up. So then we, I restructured it and eventually we did a lot of uh, acquisitions. But the land lease model, I think if... If promoted correctly and as it described correctly, is probably a solution to home ownership. Uh, the way it's structured is uh, the land is leased, uh, the home is constructed, the home hypothetically could look like any other home. As a buyer, you end up, so the, the formula that we came up with, with, that we designed in the performa, that the home would be sold for about 60% of uh, the value of a freehold home. And, and the way that we analyzed it, we said the carrying cost to the purchaser should be 20 to 30% less. 
Uh, and that's on top of the lower deposit, lower um, income needed to qualify for that deposit. So if a home is, let's say, hypothetically 800000 in a market, we'd be selling at four hundred, three fifty, in some cases lower. So now, and when you're buying a home, you tend to move quite a bit. I mean, you're not really buying the land, you're buying the house. And uh, the feedback that we got, hey, listen, you're, it's a depreciating asset. So what's in it for the the person buying the home, and we found that in all of our communities, the home value was was trending roughly in line with market. And it's surprising because, and then we like, okay, we looked at the data and we saw okay, how many units traded in the GTA or in in anywhere, and so at, at lower than four hundred thousand, it was one percent, two percent that simply don't exist. So the idea here was let's do a platform where the homes look and feel like any other home. They, it could be across the street from Madame Deal. So in this case, it's a combined land lease and freehold community. It has a great builder, Madame, and the homes look the same, they feel the same, but it's just essentially, if you go into a car showroom, you see different uh, versions. One is an economy, class, et cetera. It's just, it's just that. You're going into a car showroom, you're depending on your budget or your appetite for uh, a certain kind of home or tenureship, you just select one, and it's that simple. So this could, in my opinion, this could unlock, if properly explained, and just it promoted and marketed. Yeah. It's going to unlock. And is, uh, it, and is it, how much is the, you know, how much does it cost for you to, to lease that land? So the, the, there wasn't really a metric for that. It typically just went with what had what had been done. So it, it's 600 to 800 would be your the cost of lease. Okay. Um, I looked at it a little bit differently. We designed it based on carrying costs. We looked at the carrying cost of uh, the same unit in, in, a, uh, in a freehold unit, and we said, "Okay, we're going to just not only are we going to offer it at sixty percent of the price, so, you know, lower deposit structure, uh, backed by you know the BC Teachers Pension Fund, we're also going to give them a twenty-five, thirty percent saving on the carrying cost. So that that rent lease is now tethered to that number. We try to get at that twenty-five number, but you can you know, presumably you can get in, and it's all tertiary markets." Traditionally, but when I did the math, I was like, "Shit, this works better in a primary market because you're tethering against a high price in a primary market. You buy a piece of dirt. Uh, so we bought two deals in Thorold, Ontario. Thorold's a very hard market. We had, I bought about, I think, there were 2,500 homes on the, on the two deals that we got, and we, we were like, "Okay, Thorold in Thorold, Empire is selling at 900 bucks a square foot, uh, 900,000 yeah. for 1,500 square foot and real in townhome. And when you tether against that, you say 60 percent of that." The home tends to be 450, 350, 399, depending. And all of a sudden, you can offer that that home. Someone can buy a home for 400,000. Uh, can you a, get financing on? Yes, yeah, so from any of the traditional banks. So they've got associations with uh, a couple of banks, and it's just like any other mortgage. Right? And so, if I'm in the market and I'm just an average guy making 100k, 70k, what options do I have? I mean, I'm either renting for the rest of my life. Or, I mean, land lease becomes promising. It's like a home. You have a lease component to it. That's fine. Um, that's just like a condo. No just like a, con- a condo you know, fee, right? That's it literally yeah. is. If, if yeah. someone, this is a huge, I always thought that why don't other people get into this model? I think it's just lack of familiarity, I think. Right, but you can unlock a lot of um, value for the the end buyer. Is is something you ne- you never are really buying the land, right? You're shifting from home to home. I've moved twenty times in my life. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just unlocking at least home ownership, some sort of home ownership. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like you're in the home sales and rental business at the exact yes. same time, yeah. right? 
Yeah, it's a fascinating model. And like, you can get pension fund money because they like the but, continuous but, returns on the land. Yeah. All the deals we got, all all cash deals, I tried to insist, like, can I please negotiate a VTB? Can I please? They're offering it. <laughs> and it wasn't, we like, we don't do that. Want the unlevered cash. returns. The unlevered returns. I mean, they're, again, they're very modest, but it's, it's you know, you have to, they're only expecting about, you know, X. I won't get into the exact number, but very modest returns. But this safe, safe, <coughs> safe. It's like uh, they've got, hardly any vacancy in any of the communities you go and it's just no vacancies if a unit comes up they'll just buy it they'll renovate it and then just put it back up with a higher lease amount and it's just uh, so this one here this is really I think this this is going to be an interesting test case uh, the Mattamy deal because it's with Mattamy you're going to have people going in there um, you know you can buy a full 500,000 home next to a Mattamy 1.2 million dollar home it's it's uh, Really interesting. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting model. I mean, I think we, as an industry, have to think outside the box on, yeah. on how to get more housing built, how to, uh, you know, house these people, right? And we're, I mean, we talk a lot about how many people are coming into the country, but we don't talk a lot about the baby boomers are living a lot longer, right? And they they're are not, not selling moving, their homes. And they're not selling their homes. I mean, that's <laughs> that a that was, I, I don't no, know how long I, inside. I don't know how long I've been talking about con developers saying to me, oh, I can't wait till the baby boomers start moving down. And I'm like, they're not going they're to. Not gonna. They're just going to stay in that house forever. And then it's worth so much, you can just get a nanny if they have trouble going up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, just, oh, forget the upstairs. We'll just use that. I'll, put, I'll, I'll renovate and have a bedroom down here yeah. in this giant house that I own, right? Yeah. So, and tra- yeah. Traditionally, it's only been marketed to older demographic, right? So yeah. it's if you've in your 70s, you're like, okay, I've got maybe 10, 20 years of good living. That, that do I? I'm fine with paying a lease. I don't want to buy the land, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah but, but if you market it to families, which I, I was a plant right when I was there, where you designed the units like a, any other con- like a townhome, stack townhomes, they didn't have two-story product. They only had one st- single-level bungalows. So yeah. I'm like, okay, can we add two stories? Yeah. Can we do three? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. You, it's Your market is so... I think that could be the next big thing if you do it correctly. There was a yeah. question I asked when we had uh, Ramsey from Cache. I'm like, why doesn't anyone build a three-story single-family home? doesn't make any sense to me. We have three-story single-family homes in the city of Toronto. We have three-story townhomes. It's basically like the new, there's no, no one does like two-story townhomes anymore in the suburbs. I'm like, why wouldn't you build a three-story single detached house? It doesn't make any sense to me. Anyways, that's uh, going off on a, on a tangent. You know, I like discussing these the alternative models because it's just not something that, that we can really get into. I mean, I love going to the, the real estate conferences, but you know, you get a, a you know, a minute and 30 second sound bite from somebody. So you can't really get into, uh, you know, some of these uh, additional uh, um, issues. So th- here's another, I, 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 this was the first, I wanted to talk about this because this is the first consulting job I did at, Bull, at Bullpen Consulting. So and this is another article that was posted in, in stories.com. New master plan community puts amenities into four season focus. Um the master plan Birchley Park development by Diamond Kilmer has a focus on creating four season wellness and family centered activities. The development is located between the Danforth, Birchcliff and the beaches and will have a total of uh, 1,050 suites across 19 acres, including mid rise and townhouse developments. Some of the amenities include a year round swim spa, fireplace terraces, outdoor gym, private central courtyard, indoor outdoor gym, an indoor yoga studio, outdoor swim spa and indoor sauna, indoor party room, outdoor terraces. Um, the amenities are catered towards families. They have a basketball court, 
basketball court, gaming room, play spaces. So they've got, they've got tons of amenities. This is this is essentially at Victoria Park and and, and Girard. Um, you know, big uh, formerly government owned site. So Steve. You know, like I mentioned, this was this was a build Toronto site. Uh, I think it's considerably underzoned given its proximity to transit. Uh, there really should be high rise towers here, not mid rise and townhomes. Um, yet the, the 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 locals cave to NIMBY demands. So you've been involved in a couple of the sales of some of these government owned development sites. Uh, are they leaving value on the table by not, you know, getting these things uh, zoned with with higher densities? Yeah, I think. Um you know, we're dealing with one of the sites downtown right now, currently Creatio. Um, you know, there's an opportunity, I think, for the governments, and I think this should be something that, that they need to, and they are, uh, through the modern TO program, is is really tackling affordable housing because most people, if you're a vendor, you just want to maximize value. Yeah. And governments are really the only ones that can take less value for a greater good. Uh, for society, and that's that's affordable housing. So, if you put thirty percent affordable housing into your lands as a restrictive covenant to sell, you're going to take less value. Yeah. Who who's the only group that's going to do that? Yeah. It's not a private vendor. <laughs> yeah, it's government. So, you know, I think what's happening is the city and Metrolinks and a bunch of landowners are starting to look at it differently. Uh, IO's done it before uh, with like the Pan Am game site yeah. um, and the East Bayfront, but. Yeah, the ability to say, you know, notwithstanding the policy is, according to the provincial government, 5%, um, we're going to have 30% here and we're going to take uh, much less value in the land. I mean, that's that's why gov- what government should do and that's the role they should have. I don't think they should be the builder, but I think they can put restrictions on land, still allow the developers to get the return and, and the land value is going to be reduced. And so you look at opportunities like the Portlands, all these modern TO sites, um, they have an ability to make a really big impact on the affordable housing count. And I think that's a responsibility of government. Yeah, to do yeah, so. Yeah, it's I actually had a project that I worked on directly across this, the street from from this site. Yeah, and we we were in the approvals process, right? So we had to do a traffic plan and a context plan to show what's happening. And we the context plan it showed towers on that site, mm-hmm. and we had planned the intersection accordingly, the traffic count accordingly, and the numbers are way higher than this. This is uh, it's a w- complete underuse of the site. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's really the I had even a guy who played softball. He put a sign on. It's like no big, you know, no tower. And I'm like, he's like, I don't want it to be like, uh, you know, what's the, what's the one community they always compare it to? Like at Sherbourne and, uh, and uh, Bloor, St. James, James, James Town. <laughs> this is going to be the next St. James Town. I'm like, really? It's going to be high-end condominiums, all right? By the way, yeah, so he places got, the next St. James Town. two deals in St. James Town, so just easy. easy. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's uh, prime, prime uh, land. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that uh, you have one side of the street is the most expensive real estate in uh in the city of toronto and rosedale and then the other side is uh st jamestown but that's all being you know redeveloped right so we'll be interesting well, yeah, traditionally build to when they started they just sold the land right yeah. maximize value yeah and then that's my point they're they're evolving and so i'm not sure about that specific site well yeah. the density discussion around there I'm sure we could ask around but, um, <laughs> yeah. well we, we uh 
we had um, you know, Bob Zevsky uh, on the show and he was discussing that project. And that was, I mean, a long time coming. Like I, it's, I, like I said, I've been in business for five years and, and that was the, the first one that I, that I worked on. It just came to market this year, right? So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's actually an anecdote about Warren Buffett. It was Valentine's Day, and he's with his wife having dinner. It's really nice to have wine and dinner and having a good time. And at the end of the dinner, his wife says, uh, honey, can we go upstairs and make love? And Warren Buffett <laughs> says, baby, I can only do one, one of those things at a time. So uh, you can either go up or make love. It's... Uh, <laughs> So as I bring up to the you know municipalities, they want they're saying housing crisis. We want more homes. And meanwhile, they, they came into NIMBYs every time. They underutilized sites. Um, every hardly any build Toronto create Toronto project actually gets built. I mean, I don't know why the word build exists in in that. It's and they almost always underutilize density. They don't think of it like a like a private sector developer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've uh, I made that point uh, many times. Like why why you're just yeah, and then the ones that they don't do any affordable housing component, they just like sell it straight off, and then they go and get the entitlements first for something that's not, you know, not what needs to to be, and it just makes no sense. So, anyways, anyways, so well, we're, we're we're getting near the the end of the uh, the time on the podcast here. I'm surprised it went so fast. I looked at my clock. I'm like, oh my goodness, uh, we we have been we've uh, got a long time here. But each each show we have a rapid fire section so uh these are you know really five to ten words we're just gonna hit you hit hit them at you if you try to explain your answer too much i'm gonna i'm gonna cut you off so so let's 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 start with kevin here so nice and quick nice and quick responses uh if you say pass we will we will we will shame you so (laughs) should steve clark resign over the greenbelt fiasco Wow, starting with a polarizing question, I guess. Uh, If there was criminal activity, yes, but no. No. Okay, we'll take the no. When are we going to see more distressed development lands hit the market? You're seeing it now. You know, just just check Renex, check the Globe and Mail. Okay. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Okay, okay. Um, does it make sense that people like spaghetti sauce with hunks of tomatoes, jam with massive strawberry wedges in it, orange juice with pulp, but they don't like chunky peanut butter? That is strange. It's like not liking your milk with hunks of milk in it. <laughs> or... <laughs> Uh, okay. I'll take that answer. How does he get the, the hard hitting question? I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's, we'll get yeah. back to real estate. I got to throw, I gotta, every once in a while, just something comes into my head and I just got to ask someone else about it. If an owner has his property designated as heritage and the development value reduced, should the municipality compensate that person for their loss? Yeah, there are several ways to do that. DC credits. You know, Kaiser, you, just cash you're, you're looking, straight cash. Straight cash. You're payment. looking at me nodding your head. Why do you say <laughs> value reduction payment? Yes. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Should we put a hard cap on immigration into Canada? No. All right, Steve, you're next. What is the highest VTB as a percentage of the sold price that you've seen recently? Um, I had a deal that was. Almost done at 90%. 90%. Wow. Yeah. Like almost done. So, so the vendor was going to fund 80% as a VTB and, and first position and was going to provide effectively equity as an additional 10% in second position. Wow. And so the, the developers only have to come up with 10%. Yeah. The deal is still 
fell apart wow. um, because the, the number was still high. I think that, I think it ran out of words. Wow. Well, yeah, that is too many words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if someone's mortgage term is up and they're looking at a much bigger payment, would you advise that person to cut their spending or increase the amortization? I think increasing amortization because banks can do that now. I mean, you're seeing mortgages without 50, 60 year amortizations. <laughs> yeah. And so just defer. Yeah. Why not? I don't <laughs> see why you have to pay your house off. <laughs> in, in the end, I think that's myself. Why do you have to pay it off? Right. Why can't you have a 60 year mortgage if you're, you know, why not? I hope so. <laughs> Are Croc shoes ugly? No, nope. they're functional. Functional. Okay. Will housing affordability in Toronto improve under Olivia Chow? No. That would have been a good conversation piece for a debate, not a rapid fire question. Yes, yes. Maybe for the next podcast. Yes. Should Ontario's rent increase guideline on rent controlled buildings always be higher than the inflation rate? I think they should at least follow the inflation rate. I think I saw the last one was significantly below it. Yeah, it was like two and a half on inflation. Yeah, it was yeah, like seven. seven yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll stay on that. We'll stay on that theme for Yousef. If rent control was added on new buildings on Ontario, would that impact the ten-year decision you make on a GTA housing project? I'll keep this to one word response. Yes. <laughs> People online always try to fight me, and I'm like, I did a study. It's I did a study at Clayton Research in conjunction with CMHC where I called rental developers across the country to ask about, you know, rental performance and what was the, what was the backlog. And then there's literally some people said they put it in rent control and I didn't want to do a rental building it, anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was just like straight their, their answer. And people yeah. were, Oh no, 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 no. This doesn't have a difference. Anyway, sorry. Off topic. What's your big, what's your bigger concern as a residential developer right now? Revenue being too low or costs being too high? Once again, I'd reject that label, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, biggest concern, I think, uh, it's difficultly projecting. It's, it's so difficult to do performance, we do you know, sensitivity analysis. It's so difficult to know what's going to happen in the immediate now, long term. I think that's, that sensitivity is so difficult to model. I don't know how you guys are underwriting it. But we're finding that it's fluctuating from deal to deal, market to market, and we're across, I think, five different primary secondary markets. I would say that's it. Four and ten words. Yes. Uh, okay. There's I now I have one word that the answer before, yeah. so I, I got yeah, it's okay. You get to get some more. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> there is now a vacant homes tax in Toronto. What is a reasonable time frame that a developer can be exempt from it following completion? Let's say you've got a. Uh, a 500 unit building like how, how long should they we, we allow these these developers to have some vacant units so you're saying they just have vacant units just to carry the yeah. yeah. should you have to you know be forcing these people to reduce or make them pay the fine you shouldn't be interfering whatsoever in, in that process yeah. you shouldn't be doing anything That's it's a free market uh, I'll let them make that decision <laughs> Free capital is going to be. What do you think? What do you think moves the needle more on value? A condo building's exterior design or its interior design? Well, I've done a bunch of. We get twenty words. Exterior design. <laughs> exterior. No, okay. I, I'm going. I'm an architectural lover, but interior. It's a combination. But to, to pre-construction people, the exterior design does make a difference. Yeah. Okay. Last one. Yeah. Do you have an anonymous Twitter now X? Account Shaquille O'Meal uh, is my Twitter <laughs> handle. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, it's like use it to skulk and check out Ben's uh, many fights on Twitter. Oh, sorry, X. Yeah. Did you say I, Shaquille oatmeal? Oatmeal. Oatmeal. oatmeal? oatmeal. Yeah, Shaquille oatmeal. oatmeal. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is a great um, anonymous account. No, Twitter has been Twitter, and now X, or whatever you're calling it, is is I, I've, I've done sort of do less of it. It's just it's just the same conversations over and over and over again. So yeah. I just I'm tired of so it's I'm tired of having them. I'm tired of having conversations with people that don't know what they're talking about, yeah. right? And then they but, want to tell don't, me, don't stop. I love, oh, Ben, I love you, uh, what do you know about rental revenue? Well, I don't know. Maybe all the studies that I do every day? I don't know. Yeah. What do you know about what developers think? I've got these binoculars. Steve, do you follow, do you follow Ben on, on Twitter? Do you, I'm not a huge Twitter guy. Yeah. Um, I go on every once in a while when like there's topical information. Yeah. But I, yeah, I'm not a big X. Are you going to start a Threads account? Thread, uh, yeah. Burner, burner account. Maybe I'll start one yeah. of those. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he has the most like amazing, I would say petty, but that's not the word for it. Uh, fights with just random people the entire day. Does it make yeah. you angry? Do you just go home the, angry? No, I, I used to do it more. I used to go on Twitter more as like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a report and it might be a little bit boring. And I'm like, okay, let's quote tweet some person talking about, housing development just quote tweet their stupid thing that they've ben, said and then just Twitter get them handle? angry it's at right now. ben myers two nine two nine two okay. nine yeah that was my number in baseball and it's also born february also 9th if you want to send me birthday you number here too, uh, too main street what's that <laughs> just never mind <laughs> well again that's 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 basically the show guys i appreciate you uh you being on so steve if someone wants you to sell their land how do they how do they get a get a hold of you what's the what, what's the website well, the website is collars.com. My email is steve.kaiserkollars.com. And I will not give out my cell phone number, but you can catch me on Google. Awesome. Awesome. So if someone, so, if, so, so, so Kevin. I didn't if, say Google me. I said you can catch me on Google. <laughs> so Kevin, if you, if you've got, if a developer wants some, some, some debt financing, how do they, how do they get a, get a hold of you? Uh, email, cell phone. Uh, you got me all nervous. No, I've given out cell phone <laughs> yeah. number. I was going to give out my cell phone number. Sorry, maybe. Maybe. If someone's one hour and 20 minutes into this podcast, one of Ben's Twitter, Twitter fighters make call it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's true. Or go to the website and my cell phone number's right there. Perfect. So, oh. so, so, Seth, if 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 you have some vendors looking to to cut you some deals and stuff, how do they how do they get a hold of you? Uh, we our website is is in progress because we've been a little bit lazy uh, and only in, in business a little time. I say it's uh, reach me at s s h a s s a n s hassan at minkids m i n k i d s group dot com, um, or just go to the, the Min Kids group website. That's the Elysium sort of uh, core website that we have. And then we're going to launch ElysiumInvestments.ca, but that's uh, probably coming in a month. Nice. Yeah. So how do you pronounce uh, Elysium? Name? So again, so if you go on Google and so Jay Mintz, who's uh, our, our VP of uh, Venture Capital, as every meeting that we have, he'll start it with, he's the, playing the first link, this is Elysium pronunciation on Google, and it sounds like Elysium. So it's it's... If you play it, this show the the sir, and I don't now I don't know what the company's called. So it's uh, <laughs> we're still it's Elysium. It's like a Sean Connery kind of thing, and I like it. So we uh, I'm, we're still on undecided on oh, the pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. I, I butcher everyone's name. I still call you by the wrong name. I, I you better to butcher their listening. name though, or just <laughs> saying like hey you, hey you, yeah. <laughs> so, but, can you pronounce my name just once once uh, more? Seth. 
Oh, you nailed it. See, I got it. I got it. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to change it and I'll document it. A whole decade of mispronouncing it. Wow, that's a mic drop. That's a wrap. Over and out. Over and out.